everybody. Today we have Patrick with us. Patrick is the co-founder of TrueStar that has been recently acquired by Splunk. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Hey, very, very happy to be here. Doing well. Great to have you here. So Patrick, we know each other for, I don't know if more than a year, but we know for some time. And uh, it's pretty exciting to, to see you in the news reading about uh, the success of uh, the company that you co-founded, uh, TrueStar, as I said, recently acquired by Splunk. And for us, you know, the people that haven't yet established their own company, <laughs> that's pretty exciting. And, you know, seeing the success that someone made and the progress they made after having some experience in the industry and part of industries. So just quickly hearing from you, how does it feel? And um, Maybe if you, if you could like brief us on your feelings and, uh, you know, emotions these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to, to chat with you folks today. I know we're not, not going to be on video, but if you could see my video, you would see all my gray hair in my beard, which I didn't have <laughs> before we started. <laughs> That's for sure. But um, look, when we started on this journey seven years ago with uh, my co-founder, Paul Kurtz, who actually brought me into this, this idea. It was just really just an idea. And over the course of, of seven years, we put together a fantastic team with some, some really, really smart, motivated people who actually care about making a difference in this space. And with the help of some investors and a lot of folks who believed in us, a lot of folks who didn't, but uh, we were able to, to build a fantastic product and bring it into the market. I think one of the things that I've learned in the last several years is that this trade that we've chosen called cybersecurity is incredibly crowded and noisy space. And it's not enough just to have a great product. As much as you want to believe that and you read all the blogs that tell you, oh, just build a great product and everything else will come. I learned very early on that um, there are so many other P's, as they say, to success in launching and rolling out a product. Uh, they go beyond the P for product. And that's you know positioning and pricing and packaging and promotion. How do you get it out there? And so uh, it, was, it was a fascinating journey for us to, to be so product-oriented and, and so product-focused for our customers, but then also learn the other ways that, that matter when it comes to how do you really drive adoption and attention to your, to your product. And we were able to be very successful, which you know is, is just as much luck as it is a ton of hard work. But yeah, today we've got uh, thousands of companies on the TrueStar platform. Uh, and we're super excited to be joined forces with Splunk, which was one of our, or, well, our singular best partner. Most of our customers were Splunk customers in some way. And so when, uh, when Splunk came in Aachen and said, hey, let's, let's have a conversation that kind of goes beyond the normal partnership, it made so much sense. And not just to, to us and to our team, but to our partners, to our customers. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said, this makes a ton of sense. And so it's nice to hear that. And it's, it's just the next chapter, right? Uh, you know, while TrueStar is no longer an independent company, we are, the whole team is folded in with the Splunk folks. And we are furiously working to make integrated intelligence into every single product that Splunk has, a core differentiator for, for the Splunk family. And the last thing I'll just say is what was so exciting about joining 
Splunk, yes, the massive platform that Splunk has. I mean, 15,000 customers. I mean, that's that's something that no venture capitalist can give you, right? <laughs> they can give you money, but that sort of speed and acceleration to the market. But they were also very committed to our ideals. And at the top of that list is something that I know you, you two gents know well. We live in a heterogeneous environment of products. And it's incredibly important to to us at TrueStar and to Splunk, that we support not just Splunk-only products, but that we will support all products that our customers are using. And that was a big a big sticking point for us as TrueStar as we thought about what the next step may look like. And it was something that we were super aligned with the Splunk leadership on from the CEO all the way down. So that's exciting for us too. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing. And did you feel almost a, a sense of, not relief, but a sense of accomplishment. Like this is, this is what you've been aiming for from the beginning to merge or to be acquired and that you, you had achieved the goal you set when you started the company or you had no idea, you had no, no exact, no ambition, but no exact target in sight when you started seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I, think I was probably a, a very idealistic co-founder then. And, and there's no idealistic co-founder starts a company because they want to sell it. I think that only comes as you, you get a little bit more um, jaded maybe in the space. We believed very much that there needs to be a Switzerland platform out there that normalizes and organizes intelligence for customers and then ultimately connects it into the downstream tools where they live, regardless what that tool is. And we still believe that today. I think what I didn't know then that I know now is that aligning yourself with a strategic player like Splunk, aligning your company and your platform with a strategic player like Splunk um, that has such a powerful position in the market is a fantastic way to drive growth. And you can still preserve your ideals of um, supporting heterogeneous products while being acquired by a company like Splunk. And that was something I don't think I had processed seven years ago. It's interesting because when I hear you speak, you do sound and you clearly are a competent businessman now. You're an entrepreneur, you were managing people, managing resources. But seven years ago, eight years ago, that, that wasn't the case. And that's probably not why you first got involved in, in, in building this company. So is that something you actually enjoyed going through? Not necessarily the learning process, because I'm sure you have a thirst for knowledge naturally uh, with your background, but uh, is that enjoyable to be the CEO of a startup, no matter how successful it gets? And is that what really surprised you in the job? You know, what, what weren't you expecting? Yeah, well, uh, it's a great question. I don't think I've been asked that before. When we started, my co-founder, Paul Kurtz, was the CEO. And we had an arrangement that, you know, as we got into it in about the five-year mark, he became the chairman and I became the CEO. But we always worked very closely together as we were building the company. I think there's, there's being, being a startup CEO is uh, the highs are high and the lows are low, right? And that can take a toll. Um, it takes a toll on me. It can take a toll on the team. But... I think what keeps you going is that the highs are always way higher than the lows. And, and there is nothing more fulfilling or exciting for me professionally 
than working on a product or a feature and going from a whiteboard stage with people that are far smarter than me on our team to laying down the code, building the thing, figuring out you know, how do you make this more simple and less complex, testing it, where are the bugs, getting through that, and then ultimately bringing something to the market and seeing folks like Gilad and, and yourself and others use it and say, this is valuable. This made my day a little bit better. You know, <laughs> this made my life a little bit easier. And at the end of the day, that was the goal. How do we how do we empower folks who are on the front lines of cyber defense to do more, to do more faster? Because if we're not doing that, we're going to lose. And so when you when we were able to do that at TrueStar, we were lucky enough to have a, a, a few hits in our product. When we were able to do that, it was it, it's just so fulfilling. But yeah, there's there's plenty of lows in, in building a business and in, in, that aren't just in the startup phase. With different times, we had to make tough decisions about people and, and moving people on. And, and those are never fun conversations. Uh, we had to do a pay freeze in the, during COVID just at the very beginning um, because we weren't sure what the heck was going to happen with the economy. These are difficult messages to bring to people. And that's never fun. Actually, this is very interesting because I was just, you know, I had this question in mind regarding how you actually manage through through crisis. And, you know, from a personal perspective, this is very interesting, not even the content and what's behind it, but from, you know, emotional or moral perspective, how do you handle crisis and, you know, the low parts? Because this is, for me, it's pretty trivial that, that the highs are, of course, high and, um, and uh, joyful. And gives you lots of energy and inspire you to to move on and you know give it all for for you know the bigger moments to come. But you know crisis crisis times are the ones that I, I think kind of sharpen you uh, for for the for the next to come and so on. And I tend to, to think of it, about it more and more because there's one another podcast which I listen to and it's not about cybersecurity. It's by an Israeli Olympic medalist in, in judo. He's like very famous in Israel. His, his podcast is all about these moments that kind of, mm. I'm not sure how to describe it, but sharpen you or uh, kind of design your personality for the next to come. Could you describe some of this, you know, not, not the specific moments, but the feelings and uh, the steps that you take once you, you know, you're in these lower moments and how you can overcome these obstacles for the next to come. This is great. This is far less of a technical cyber security or cyber intelligence. Now this is kind of just a business and philosophy, <laughs> but I love talking about this. I don't get asked it very often. I think crisis I've learned particularly at, at true star. And I would say in my past life, I, I worked, um, insecurity more as an operator. I've spent the better part of 10 years on the ground in and around the Middle East and, and Afghanistan and, and working with um, governments and multinational corporations to uh, secure assets and people in those kind of environments. And I think what, what I learned during TrueStar that I probably didn't appreciate then is the value of trusting people in a crisis. You know, when times were tight, uh, if money was tight, if we'd had a, a scare like COVID and, and not knowing what that would mean for the business. And, you know, you go into a board meeting and they say, 
you know, hey, you got to have two years of cash in the bank because who knows what's going to happen. And you look at them and you say, we've never had two years of cash in the bank. Why are we going to uh, do that now? And uh, scenarios like that or um, challenges in, in, in going to a remote workplace and, 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 or just scaling a team from, from a few people in a room to uh, um, people all over the U.S. in South America. And we have a fantastic team in Argentina as well that supports us. When, when shit goes wrong, I found that when when I was transparent with people, um, each time I was rewarded with like this confidence and and calm. And anytime I was afraid about sort of disclosing the truth or afraid about telling too much, if I got over it and just said, "Look, here's here's the situation, team, people." I trust you. That's why you're here. I hope you trust me. Or even. With our customers, you know, we had issues with with bugs and outages on the platform. When you just come clean with your customers and your users, and you just tell them exactly what's happening, you don't try to hide the ball. Um, I've never once felt like I shared too much in a crisis, and and maybe someday I will, um, but um, I haven't hit that point yet. That's very interesting because many people tend to kind of hide lots of the the details in the bad situations. And it's very interesting because for I can only imagine the, the pressure that you're under as a CEO of your own, you know, co-founded company as an entrepreneur that on the one hand really want to defend and make progress and on the other, like want to, to describe and reflect reality as it is in order to overcome this obstacle in the best possible way. You know, but I think for many people, it won't be that trivial. Because from a, I would say you described earlier that for, in order to succeed, you, you don't only need a great product. You also need, I would summarize it really quick, in marketing. So sometimes saying the truth, is, it's probably not the best way to market yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think um, the truth can be scary. But like I said, if you've got the right team, if you've got the right principles, if you've got the right values and you feel like you can stand on those. I have yet to hit a situation in my career where transparency backfired. Uh, you know, and yeah, well, like I said, but I, I haven't seen it yet. Hey, actually, a follow-up question on, the, on that subject. You emphasize the importance of you know vision, values, and people. And people in an organization they work towards a goal so you can set clear goals and assign metrics and measure how close they get to that goal. And I'll have another question on that, but how do you build a culture when you hire people remotely? I mean, I know it's incredibly difficult. How have you attempted at building a culture at making sure people will probably never meet you, never meet their colleagues overseas or, um, you know, people that have been part of that culture for seven years, a making sure they're a fit when you only interact them, you know, digitally and, and, and B, make sure they, they grow within that culture. Yeah. It's a totally different operating model. I'm somebody who, um, and I, I know we haven't met in person, but I'm somebody who's, I think, just far better in kind of a kinetic tactile environment. I, I think some of my, some of the things that, that differentiate me kind of come out when I'm able to be in a room. And I think those are muted and diluted when, when I'm not able to kind of walk around and 
talk to people on the team. Um, so I'm kind of missing a dimension for sure. Yeah. I'm missing a dimension and I feel, I feel less dimensional. You know, I feel, I feel like I don't have a part of my personality, even a part of my toolkit that I think has made me effective in the past. And yet I also recognize that this is the new normal. So better get used to it and start learning how to maneuver and operate in this kind of, of an environment. I think how TrueStar, how we were able to, to do it is, is we did have the benefit of starting with a small team in San Francisco. And that team, while you know, over the years, uh, some of them went on to, to do fantastic things and go to other places. And those always were exciting days to celebrate somebody kind of going and you know, being an early engineer at Coinbase, or, which I'm a little jealous of, but, um, or other places. <laughs> we had people who stayed. And we brought in people too along the way who were fantastic culture carriers. And I think that's that's the answer to your to your question that I'm trying to articulate yeah. is, yeah, and it can't just be about me or my co-founder. You know, that doesn't scale. And so the way that we were able to do it, and, and certainly I think there were things that we could have improved, but but at the end of the day, our culture was something that I think I was absolutely most proud of um, when I look mm-hmm. back on, on TrueStar's existence. And I think we were able to get there because we we had fantastic people that went beyond just the co-founders who actually gave a shit and who right. gave a shit about having a place where um, they enjoyed coming to work every day. And they were able to take their work very seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, cybersecurity is an intense a serious subject and our customers are often the prickliest people in the organization. You know, <laughs> they're the ones who who are the toughest to to win over and, and to get on board and are always skeptical of vendors. Uh, but when you when you get them and you help them, there's no better champions. And so we had a, a an unwritten rule that we take our work very seriously, but not ourselves. So try to make it fun and try to Try to respect the people that you're working with and ensure that if, if you're starting a company that you you think about culture carriers in the org because there's no pride in being, you know, trying to be the Steve Jobs with just, you know, the turtleneck and you're the only one who's carrying the culture. That there's no pride in that. Really, you want to be looking for how do you how do you diffuse that into the org as quickly as possible. Yeah. And trust, as you mentioned, is is so important. It's always baffled me when I see companies. Spending, especially now with the the urgency to hire people in a market where there is a shortage of talent, outrageous amount of money just hiring someone, whether they're going through recruiters, the onboarding, etc., working remote. But but you know they they trust people they've met maybe a couple of times to spend that much money on hiring them. But once they're in the company, the trust stops, and there's yeah. lots of micromanagement, kinds of surveillance, and. People are constantly asked to justify their purpose. And that's even more so now in, in this environment. I, I've never understood that. When you've, yeah. you know, you've, you've already invested so much money in someone you barely know. And once they're with you, you distract them from accomplishing their goals with the micromanagement. And, and then you have to give trust to, to get it back. And you want to be trusted as an employer. You want yeah. to stand for something and you want your people to believe in you, that you have some, some values. That's right. And, and, and I think that was also a lesson that I learned um, probably not early enough at TrueStar is, is this, this idea that there's, there, there isn't value or upside or pride in micromanaging or being the one to do it all. You know, when you get into year two, three, four of, of, of your journey, if you're the, one who, the only one who's still 
working with customers and, and closing deals or at, you know handling escalations or you know resolving the product roadmap like that's a problem usually that's because you've inserted yourself too much or I inserted myself too much into those decisions right and so I needed to learn how to kind of take a step back and let go of the control of that and yeah. make space for others to run with the ball. And that's the only way to scale one. And two, it's the only way to create a place that anybody actually wants to come and work at too. Yeah, but that, that, that requires social skills or a, an entirely different set of skills than the one that you probably need to found a company like the one you founded. I think nobody prepares you to be uh, managing people, which is probably the hardest part of building a business. Do you feel that's maybe something lacking from investors' landscape to have more, more training, more nurturing, more mentoring of young founders, helping them bridge a gap in skills outside of a technical area? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question, Simon. I, a couple of things. One, I, I had the benefit of, uh, I went to business school before I started True Star. Um, yeah, and sort of this answer. intervening period between when I was, an operator and an analyst and then um, TrueStar. And, you know, that was an expensive investment for me in both time and money to do that. I think what I learned most from that, and, and I, I did it at Stanford, and they have a reputation for um, the softer side of leadership and actually emphasizing things like empathy and being an empathetic leader and like, how, how do you teach and, and learn that? And that was something... I knew nothing about. I mean, I had worked in private security, you know, in my 20s, and it was a, you know, a fairly masochistic, roided out environment in, in these, you know, hostile environments. And so being able to kind of sheep dip myself, at least in the, the research around empathetic leadership and learn some tools before True Star, I think was incredibly valuable to me. And I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, I still, you know, was poorly equipped in a lot of ways to do this. And I'd say there are some investors who are better than others. Not all investors are created equal is something I learned. And some are more thoughtful about the needs of, of the founding team and are more aware of the, the strengths and the weaknesses and wanting to sort of actively fill that. And others are more hands off and kind of show up at a board meeting and we'll kind of make a couple comments and, and then, you know, you'll see them in three months. And so uh, I was lucky enough to, to have both types. I think that the, at the end of season one of Shot of Cyber, Simon, we'll need to create this board of, you know, highlight quotes and we'll have Patrick saying, not all investors are created equal. That would only <laughs> to you yes. in the future. So, Patrick, I have one silly question, and, and after that, some more serious question. San Francisco is by far one of the greatest cities in the world, some say, but still, it's so expensive. So when you start a company and you tell to the investors, guys, I'm going to start hiring people in San Francisco and get an office there, how do they react? Where do you get oh. the money from? <laughs> It's interesting. When we, when we started True Star, Paul Kurtz and I, I was actually commuting to Baltimore. Paul lived in D.C. I lived in San Francisco. And we were, we were actually meeting up in Baltimore in an office there and using some, some technical resources that we knew in that area. And then when we went out for venture funding, basically, and now this is seven years ago, keep in mind, this is seven years ago, 
it was hard to raise money as a enterprise tech platform unless you were building your team in San Francisco. You know, if you go down to, to Sand Hill Road and we're pitching a company seven years ago that wasn't in San Francisco, often you heard from, from investors, oh, how could you possibly not be in Stanford? All the tech talent is here. Why, you know, why would you do this anywhere else? How will you be successful? How will you innovate for God's sakes? And then, you know, you fast forward five years and I remember going out for another funding round and, and, you know, the question was, how the heck are you going to get outside of San Francisco? How are you going to scale your team out of here? You know, and then so they're like almost over that period, the, the tone with Silicon Valley investors changed from, you got to be here. You got to be here. You got to be here. Innovation only happens in Silicon Valley to what is your scaling strategy beyond this town? Because it's too dang expensive. And so um, luckily we were able to kind of traverse that path. And like I said, we, we went remote before it was kind of COVID cool. In January of 2020, we had a company all hands where we announced we are going fully remote. We had hired our first couple of engineers outside of San Francisco and in Texas and in Argentina and had a fantastic experience with it. And so we said, this is it. This is the future. And we're going to go remote. And then, then as it happened, three or four months later, we wouldn't have had a choice anyway. Um, but Apparently, at least there is some talent outside of San Francisco, right? That's right. <laughs> there is. There's a lot. There's so much. And God, it's so... And as, as somebody who, who spent probably too long in Silicon Valley and, and you know, for, went to school there and then, and then um, or at least to grad school there and then where we started TrueStar, it's so hubristic to think that, you know, this is the only place where you could do it. God, there are so many talented people all over the world. And I'm constantly impressed at the people that we find. That's awesome. You got to be very courageous to really take this step and start a company. You know, the... The courage, I think, sometimes, as you're alluding to, comes from ignorance or stupidity about how hard it's going to be. That's bad news. <laughs> yeah, I think sometimes the, the naivety helps in the entrepreneurial journey. And I do tell folks, I mean, I got some good advice along the way. I was told, be ready to spend the next 10 years of your life on this. When you're thinking about putting together that, that, that slide deck about the idea and see what, you know, see what others think, you know, be ready to, to spend the next 10 years. This is going to be a chapter of your life. And, and so I, I did have that kind of like mentality going into it. I don't think I understood how hard or what some of the challenges would even be, but I also didn't understand what some of the high times would feel like either and, and where those would come from. But I do tell folks, you know, there is Silicon Valley in particular, we sexualize entrepreneurial journeys. You know, we, we talk about how it's, it's such a glamorous road. And I would say, particularly in enterprise cybersecurity, there, there's a few things that are glamorous about it. I mean, you are out there, you're working late, trying to build the product, understand what the competitive landscape looks like. Um, but you're also prostrating yourself on the altar of, hey, especially in those early days, please be a beta customer. Please be an investor. Please join my team. Please. There's a lot of sort of putting yourself out there. Um, and there's a lot of no's that come back too, you know? <laughs> and, and so it, it can be a really torturous experience in the early days, especially until you get some proof points. And so um, you've got to either A, 
have enough naivety that you don't really know or care about that or B have enough confidence in yourself that, that you can take, you can take it and that you've got a strong enough chin to, to absorb those blows. Yeah. Just a quick follow up question on that. I mean, how hard is it, especially in the early days where, you know, you hear where this company grew 50% year or near the first three years, but that could mean, well, they had one customer, then they had two, then they had four, but you know, they have customer that weighs so much on their revenue that how hard is it to stick to your vision know at what point you're not just being stubborn and you're not just living in your own little bubble and you had this idea and you, you love the idea more than the business itself. Right. Uh, and, and how do you resist and how do you stick to a roadmap when you need to listen to your customers and they make valid points, but at the same time, you can't become a service company and just tailor software for each individual customer. That's, that must be part of the torture. This is a difficult challenge. And I think it goes beyond... Cybersecurity. I mean, particularly with with data companies, in the sense that there's often this really fuzzy line between, you know, are we becoming a service company for these large enterprises, or are we actually becoming a product that is repeatable and and scalable? And you've hit the nail on the head. It, it is a bit of a constant tug of war. And I will tell you, you know, the conversation doesn't just stop at the early stage. I mean, huge companies are engaged in these debates all the time. And I mean, I, I've seen it at, at Splunk as well. You know, where do we draw the line here? And and how do we handle these bespoke customer requests versus what are we productizing and actually investing in, in terms of, of features or capability for the products that we have? Um, it's a challenge. I would say that, you know, there, there's a saying that we often said at TrueStar, which is, if you never listen to your customers, you will fail. If you only listen to your customers, you will fail. (laughs) And so you have to sort of thread the needle between being fanatically focused on delivering for your customers, but also being really clear with your customers about what you're not going to do. And that is a journey that that is in a tightrope that is difficult to walk. And I think is always, always sort of being revisited in a company's journey. But yeah, we had those challenges. We had, and it's tough in the early days when you're a, when you're a startup company. I mean, and, and particularly for us, the way that we operate. I mean, we had some of the largest companies in the world as you know, our first five, 10, 15, 20 customers were these household names, and it's hard not to. To just sort of concede and and who are you to who are you to yeah but you have to be careful that you don't become you know an outsourced dev shop for that company you know and and you've got to be able to to really take a look at what you have and make judgments about how repeatable is this how much can we drive this capability into other use cases into other personas into other companies versus just being some sort of custom code that we're laying down uh, I was thinking about you know not just culture but uh, working towards a common goal with a group of people and you know whether you're on the field uh, working in intelligence or you're working in cybersecurity or you're running any kind of project you want to support those goals with, uh, well, it's called MKPIs now because that's 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 more of the business term. But um, I know that large software companies, user satisfaction or client satisfaction as an important KPI, even for their commercial function, for their business people, they don't just need to bring in revenue and they have ambitious targets, et cetera, but they, they also need to not make it at the expense of 
you know, the, the client, the brand, and, and make sure that, yeah, user satisfaction is, is taken into account and that they're rewarded even financially for helping keep those, those metrics up. In the early days and even in, in, in the later days, especially of cybersecurity startups or emerging companies, I mean, I've seen people work in sales. The only, the only thing that they were measured against was revenue. And mm-hmm. it's, I think, quite dangerous. And I understand why it's done because that's, that's pretty much the only thing that the financiers might care about in the, you know, in the early years. But it can have just terrible, terrible uh, consequences because to a lot of new clients, the sales guy is probably the only person they're ever going to see. And he's, he's the only brand ambassador or representative of your company they're ever going to meet. So if mm-hmm. that person only cares about closing a deal, doesn't behave in a way that, you know, even though he, he, even if he loses a deal or, or, or doesn't pitch it correctly, but misrepresents your vision or hurts your brand, your reputation as professionals, it's, you're not just losing a deal, you're losing so much more over the long term. Because as you know, working with enterprises, they will give you a look. And even though your product may be completely different the next year or two years later, they might not consider talking to you again for another three years and they will still have that perception. And the only representation of your company won't be the analyst, the engineer, the leadership. It will be a salesperson who you've greatly incentivized to just care about the short-term deal. How much of the KPIs, especially those given to sales, do you think need changing? Yeah, yeah. I think you've hit a really important point that, you know, I, I do think it transcends cybersecurity. I think it's enterprise sales in general. What, what's interesting about cybersecurity is it is a small world. And as important and big as this problem is, the community of InfoSec professionals is relatively small. And so your reputation, your integrity matter more than perhaps other industries. And I, I think it also means that, 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 you know, any one relationship has the potential to kind of make or break you to the next phase of your growth. Yeah. And so I, I think that revenue is a lagging indicator of success. And there are leading indicators or more fruitful inv- indicators. You know, I, I mean, one thing that always meant a lot to us was, can we get a customer to come up on a blog post or a webinar for us. And it, and it wasn't so much because of, yeah, that, that gives us this halo and helps us get more deals. It was, is this person willing to go through the work of like getting, you know, if they work at a big company, getting the approval or are they willing to kind of go out on a limb to, to, to participate because they've had such a good experience because we've put enough into this that they feel that they want to reciprocate and that there's value in aligning themselves with this brand for themselves. So, you know, I always thought things like that are far more valuable than um, the annual contract value dollar amount that you may see. As far as KPIs and OKRs in, in general, I think they're incredibly helpful to align a company in terms of like, articulating priorities. At the end of the day, we had a a CTO who would say this all the time, there's no such things as solutions. It's just trade-offs. In a startup, you're constantly 
just trading things off. And I, I think in any company, you're constantly trading things off. And, and the value of OKRs and KPIs is it forces you to go through this prioritization exercise across the org. And then it gives you these commandments that, yes, allow you to benchmark yourself against them. And it's good to kind of grow the business, but also helps you weigh trade-offs that come up every day, every week, every month, and also gives a blueprint to your team and to your other leaders so they can actually evaluate the trade-offs, then, then you don't have to just be making the decision. So that's what I think the value is. And the last thing I'll just say is, I think we're seeing a change in how um, cybersecurity products are coming to market, or I hope we are. Um, one of the things that was always important to TrueStar was the idea of building community. And in fact, I, you know how we met Galad was through one of our community partnerships. So the old model of how you bring a cybersecurity product to market went something like this. Unfortunately, you had somebody who probably looked a little bit too much like me, who had a background a little bit like I did, who would create a PowerPoint slide deck. They would take that deck, they would go to Sand Hill Road, they would shop it around, somebody would give them some money, they would build an MVP. Then they'd strong arm a couple of their buddies who they used to know, who they worked in government with or had crossed paths with, to who are now in private sector to be beta customers of that. They get a couple of testimonial quotes. You take that, you put them in a slide deck, you bring it back to Sand Hill Road, you raise a bigger round. And now you take this cash that you have and you go to RSA and you get a big freaking booth and you give away a drone, you scan some badges, you juice up the sales force to get the ACB numbers going and then boom, you sell it to Cisco and everybody's happy, but nobody gets any safer. And that was kind of the way that, that, that it's worked for 20 years. And a lot of venture capitalists have made a lot of money on that model. Something that was always important for us at TrueStar was how are we building community? How are we contributing to the community? And so um, our go-to-market strategy was built around giving our product away or a slice of our product away to information sharing communities, ISACs, ISAs, which I imagine your audience probably knows. Um, these are groups of companies that come together to share intelligence for good. And, and TrueStar was built to help solve those problems. And so that meant that we always had this kind of bottoms up motion rather than this like, you know, get the big booth at RSA and scan the badges motion. But uh, I think you're going to see a lot more. I hope you'll see a lot more motions that that reflect community, the go to community rather than just kind of the juice up the sales force and, you know, give them enough incentives to, to plow this into the market as quickly as possible. This is actually pretty fascinating to me to hear. I'm also a very big fan of community and information sharing. So you got me there. Definitely. When I'm thinking about the future of this um, this industry, the cybersecurity and the threat intelligence in particular, I think that the future holds both, I would say, data organization and filtering and lots of integrations and, I would say, aggregations, meaning that I would expect to see lots of platforms getting together into one dashboard and making sense of lots of data in an automated fashion. How do you see like the, the future of, you know, the, I would say the, the key issues that um, future companies in this industry will address? Is it only about data sharing and community or can you think of other, you know, things that they would do? I know you've been in this space, space a while, Threat intelligence is, has kind of had an interesting arc. 
And when you use words like intelligence, which we do all the time, you know, it conjures up these notions of like back alleys and daggers. And, and we use words like tradecraft. And I think what's interesting about that is in the early days of threat intelligence, if you go back 10, 12 years and, and some of the early movers and the eyesight partners, threat intelligence was, you know, a 40 page PDF that you would get once a month about, you know, what some Eastern European hacker had for lunch, you know, and you'd pay, you know, half a million bucks a year for that. And I think what we, we've seen is, is the evolution of intelligence now in this decade and really an embracing of the idea that, that intelligence and enterprise security is about accelerating automation. In national security, and, and I know I know we've got some experience in that, national security, the purpose of intelligence is, is to inform policy. It's to inform targeting often. Bombs fall out of the sky. It's a little bit different in enterprise security, where the purpose of intelligence is to accelerate automation. And, and because of that, I think you're seeing the embracing of, of intelligence and security as a data problem. And this is something that, I, that, that Splunk has been saying in the market for longer than TrueStar has, which is security is a data problem. Intelligence is a data problem in the enterprise. And so, Gilad, you know, I think you're exactly right. This becomes increasingly less of a tradecraft and the elegance of analyst prose when we're writing the report and becomes much more a problem of data normalization, data aggregation, data prioritization, data integration. And these are less sexy. Maybe they don't conjure up images of back alleys and trench coats and daggers, but they are infinitely as important, if not more important, um, because if we fail at normalization, if we fail at integration, then you're just going to have this signal sitting on the cutting room floor. And we're not going to bring it to bear. And if, if we look out at the next decade and you or others in this industry are still spending two, three, four hours a day copying and pasting indicators out of a blog into a lookup table, uh, we're going to lose. You know, if we got 50 tabs over it and like that, that's how we're, that's how we're doing it, we're going to lose. So we have to focus on using intelligence and operationalizing intelligence for impact in automation. And the last thing I'll say is increasingly that is being measured by how it's impacting MTTD and MTTR. You asked about KPIs, you asked about OKRs. I'm seeing forward-thinking security leaders start to embrace these as the North Star metrics for their program. And measuring success against how the needle is moving on that. And so um, I think you're going to see intelligence really step to the challenge of impacting MTTD and MTTR in this next phase. Patrick, I can only say that you've just offended hundreds of analysts around the globe that oh, love know. copying and pasting. <laughs> I know, I know, I always do. from blogs. We, we don't have that many listeners. They but. just love it and just, just <laughs> insulted them. Yeah, it's true. Just kidding. Uh, I, I definitely agree. It's been very interesting and, and funny and entertaining. Uh, very grateful. You Thank you. And, and thanks for having me on. And, and thanks, for, thanks for doing this podcast. I know you're in early days, but um, it's so important that, that, that folks like you who've got great experience in this space, share it. And I really commend what you all are doing. And I can't wait to uh, continue to be a, a very happy listener. Mm-hmm.